Uh, welcome back, everyone, to another Sporting Blog podcast. First one of the year, actually. Um, it's been pretty hectic. Um, but um, as you know, we tend to wait for good and interesting guests rather than just pile in a lot of retired f- footballers and others who just want to take some money off us and uh, get to chat. So um, on the fact, last guest was Hannah Huseman, who's the mental skills coach at the Philadelphia Phillies uh, baseball organization. And we got into some real detail about mindset and play um, and that sort of thing. And I was minded that it's probably something that isn't really spoken about a whole lot in uh in football terms um there's a lot chatted about resilience and you know oh he's got the right attitude and all that sort of stuff but we don't really get into the detail of it and um i think there's a lot of general misconceptions about what goes into to making a decent footballer and and you know the successful ones as opposed to ones of great talent so we thought we'd find someone who could help us dig a little deeper into the coaching um, side of the game and, and what makes a good player and so on. So we're speaking with Harry Brooks today, who, if you are a Twitter user and maybe um, follow Spurs or any of the London clubs, you will recognise from his reasonably smart and straightforward analysis of, of games when they're on on Twitter and obviously fighting off many people that would disagree with him and others. Um, Harry, how's it going? I'm really well, thank you, mate. Thank you for the invite. Really looking forward to it. And yeah, I do certainly get enough uh, disagreements on Twitter. So um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the invite. No prob. So it's actually a reasonable point. So the reason I actually asked you on was because as someone else who I, you know, I would claim to be slightly more of a thinker of the game um, and less reactive. Of course, Twitter's full of loads of reactive stuff and, and you try yeah. to, to put informed comment a lot and then you have to fight away. And, it, and there was just a lot of stuff that you've been putting on there recently that's, that's um, resonated with me. So hmm. I thought we'd just get into, let's just start with coaching. So just, just a brief intro of yourself, the, the elevator pitch for anyone listening who hasn't heard of you. Yeah, so basically um, what I predominantly do, or at least this is what people seem to be most interested in, um, is that I train professional and academy players for a living. Um, that can be done by coaching on the on the field, um, outside of their clubs, um, but also through providing analysis, so watching their games and providing reports, um, and, you know, just sort of working with players outside of their clubs, um, making sure that they obviously improve and maintain their standards and, and be the best they can be. Um, that's generally speaking what takes up most of my time. <laughs> so this brings me on to the first point really um, that I wanted to chat with you about, and that's coaching outside of a club structure, because I imagine, and lots of people listening won't know because they've never been inside a professional football club or understand the route from academy through to pros and all the rest of it. But in sports like tennis, golf, cricket, to some extent, there's a number of different inputs to your coaching and, you know, you're, you're not necessarily fully looked after by a club. Whereas for, if you're a decent footballer at a young age and you're an academy player, your, your, your coaching is looked after by a club for a long time. What yeah. is it like with, for you working with players that have been in a club structure from a young age? And do you find that they're receptive to one-on-one coaching or do you think they need to be part of the group and feel like they're, they're, they're training for a reason? To, to like, amongst their peers, you know, to feel like they well, need to be with others to impress? Um, what I say to players, all my players, and um, I think people will be surprised about how many footballers um, do extra work. I say to my players all the time, um, you can't just rely on the club. 
you can't just rely on the club. Um, you've got to do more. You've got to do extra work on the outside. And that can be in a lot of different ways. It can be through individual one-to-one coaching. It can be on, you know, provide again, finding someone to provide an analysis for you. But the problem is, and it, especially for academy players who are looking to make it, they aren't, they aren't established pros yet. You know, you play for an academy. There's a lot of players in your age group, in the club. There isn't necessarily the time for those clubs or the capability for them to provide the specific attention to detail that you need, the individuality. So therefore, players have to take it upon themselves to go outside the club to find that extra work. Because, you know, let's say, and and that's even for the situation for professional players. Let's say you you take a pro at the highest level that plays for a a, a club in Europe. You know, quite often in the season, they'll have three games a week. So their schedule will look like, you know, preparation for the match, um, tactical training, um, recovery, things like that. And obviously team cohesion, different work like that. There might not be the time in the sessions to go and do the specific individual work that you need. It could be working on something really simple, like your weak foot finishing. It could be more complex. So therefore, players have to take it upon themselves to go and do extra work on the outside. And that's where people like myself come in. Yeah, because there's always the, the great cliche of staying behind after training and yeah. you know, m- making the goalkeeper stay out <laughs> to practice yeah. your finishing and all that. But I suppose, actually, if you extrapolate that, there, there, is, there is some merit to that, right? Oh, 100%. You know, that as I said, people will be amazed how many players actually go and seek outside work with extra coaches that they trust, um, that knows their game, that knows what to work on them with. Um, people would be surprised that, you know, that the just training for your club isn't enough. Um, but it isn't enough. It isn't enough. You've got to do more. Generally speaking, you've got to do more extra work on the outside. And, and yeah, that's where people like myself come in. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, is there such thing as too much or, you know, what's too much training um, or what's not enough training? And I, I kind of say to them, there's no such thing. It's all about how you train. You know, there's no reason why you can't train and work every single day as long as it's the correct work, you know. Um, and by the same token, you could do, you know, two extra sessions a week that are really, really good. Or you could do five extra sessions a week that are a waste of time. So it's all about understanding what you require and putting the things in place to make sure that you, A, improve or B, or maintain your standards, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it, it does actually make a lot of sense. And I think what you say about, needing you know not necessarily having enough time to work on individual whether it's skills or or even mindset or whatever i mean you, you can take the example of a, of a right back that's suddenly told that they're going to have to be part of an attacking formation and they're going to be crossing sure. the ball more but if the person doesn't get the chance to practice their crossing and all they're working on <laughs> is tactical stuff all the time where are you going to get to exactly um, exactly yeah. yeah and and i think that that it was something i did want to also speak to you about is that you know, that assessment of skills, so an individual assessment, as opposed to being assessed under the framework of the team as a whole, because it, we've all watched teams where there's eight or nine really good players and they seem to be carrying one or, you know, someone who maybe doesn't openly affect the team as much as others. But how do you go about assessing a player based on the fact, based on who he's playing for? So let's say you've got a, a championship player or a Premier League player that is playing first 11 football, do you take, do you look at them and think, right, how am I going to get you to play better in that setup or just as a player as a whole? It's really interesting, actually. Um, it's one of those situations where 
I work with the player and kind of for the player. I don't work for the club. Um, for me, my my goal is to make the player become the best they can be. Now, we've had it with situations before and all the time, which like I say before, it happens now, where let's say you've got a player and if I look at, a, say, let's say you go younger and go for an academy player and they're playing for an academy that they ask them to do really, really specific things. Let's say that they want their wingers to just stay out wide, hit the byline and cross. Yeah. Now, it's not me saying to the player, ignore the club. But at the end of the day, that club is trying to produce that player for their first team and they want them to play the way their first team do. And that's why they're getting them to say that. But I've got to make sure my player has as much possibility to go and play any level of football and has as much to their game and makes them as attractive to as many people as possible. So in my sessions, I might work on their, their ability to cut in and finish or get involved in the middle of the pitch. Because let's say, for example, they don't then go and play for that academy. In, sorry, they don't go and play for that first team. Now, all of a sudden, they've been released and they're looking for a club. They've just been coerced or conditioned yeah. to play for a really specific setup in a really specific team um, that perhaps other teams don't play for. So now, when I go put them on trial to other places or they go and look to play for other clubs, now they're being asked for different questions. And it's like, well, hang on. You know, now we want you to, can you cut in and affect the game? Can you play off your weak foot? Can you go both ways? Yeah. Now, if you've just worked on what the club, his previous club had said, you know, he would go, well, well, well no, I can't. I've, I've never been asked to do that. So now you're not as attractive to as many people. So it's about understanding what the club wants. So, of course, if they want the player to be really good at going down the line and crossing, then we do lots of work on that because at the end of the day, they're playing for that club and they've got to make sure they produce and perform. But my goal isn't that they become necessarily a success at that club. It's that they become a success in general. So I've got to make sure that they are as effective and as attractive and have as much possibility to have a sustained career as possible, if that makes sense. And that's yeah. an academy or perhaps professional level, you know? Um, so again, it's not that I ignore what the club say, of course not. You know, if they're playing, if they're on a, if you're talking about first team level and they're on a, a lovely contract and, you know, for the next three years, then of course they've got to do what the manager says and they've got to be able to play in that system. So I work towards that and I help them with that. So I'll do extra work, which allows them to play in that area in that team. But I will also do work that is relevant to them that perhaps broadens their game as well um, to make sure that they are covered and they add to their game. Yeah, and I think obviously there's lots of examples uh, of players that have either excelled at a club and then got a move and just not fit in with, and this is not to do with like my face doesn't fit. There are players that have not fitted in tactically because mm. the job they've been doing at their previous club has not translated. I mean, I take Danny Drinkwater as a great example of that. Leicester was an all-action midfielder, was expected to work in both halves under Ranieri, cover about as much ground as you could without being actually the, uh, the best athlete ever. But sure. the fact that he was recovering the ball in the opposition half, breaking up play closer to goal, was his skill set. And then he went to Chelsea and was asked, well, don't worry, N'Golo Kante does all of that, so you just sit. And actually, he was caught out of position so many times because I think he'd been conditioned to just run and run and run. And and when he was actually asked to be more of a pivot and move the ball from side to side, it didn't really, I think he'd almost been sort of coached, it'd been coached into him that constantly had to move. And so didn't really adapt. And I guess that must happen, especially with young players who've been in an academy that plays a certain way for a long time, that if they get released or they suddenly go and get their first chance professionally, they, they may be, you know, I don't know, years ago, 
I know uh, Spurs Academy certainly uh, under Pochettino set up a certain way and you could see them all playing in the same formation and that yeah. it might be, I mean, how do you find it when Academy players come out of a long period and, you know, then they're trying to make their first professional steps away from those academies? Do they, do they have lingering issues like that that you have to kind of coach out of them? Yeah, 100%. It's actually, you know, there are so many... It's one of those situations, let's say an academy player comes in trains with me for the first time at the age of 15 or 16. Um, generally speaking, they all have very similar traits. Not all of them, of course. There's always going to be, you know, anomalies or different players with their own personalities. But generally speaking, if you have an academy player at 15 or 16, you can generally tell the ones that have been in the system from the age of nine or the pre-academy because they've been... They're very robotic. They've been taught or conditioned to do what the academy wants, play how they want, and sort of that's how they almost they lose a lot of their individuality. They lose their personality. They've been they've been conditioned to do what the academy wants, and that is a problem for me. Now, of course, you're always going to get the examples where you know players still have personality and they've been in the academy for a long time, and that's fine. But generally speaking, you know, I do think there's an I do think there's an issue where academies have a habit of getting their players to play their way, a certain style, and they become quite robotic in the sense that they know what to do for that academy. They know what to do, you know. For example, I, I work for an independent academy as well, where we, we um, bridge the gap between grassroots and pro football, and we regularly play against professional academies before lockdown. Generally speaking, 99% of the academies we would play against, the boys that we, whatever age group that we took down, they would play the same way. They, we, our boys knew what the academy was going to do. Yeah. We asked them before the game, what they're going to do today, boys? Well, they're going to play out from the back. Their keeper's not going to be allowed to kick it long. The centre-back, the keeper will pass to the centre-backs. The centre-back will only be allowed to pass to this player or that player. And those players become conditioned to play like that. But football doesn't exist like that. Football is much more broad than that. So, yes, of course, I don't mind having a philosophy. And I don't mind if you're trying to produce players for your first team. And you've got to play that way, and you've got to play that way to produce players for your first team. But for me, that only really stands to reason if you have a good record of producing players consistently for your first team doing that way. But generally speaking, there's not many players clubs in the in the country that do that. Now, actually, you know, for me, the way for it should be done, in my opinion, which I like, for me, clubs like Man United are fantastic at this. They teach a player how to play any level of football. They teach the player how to play the game of football, not just a specific way where we look to dominate the ball and that's that. You know, they teach players how to play the game. So when you're a player at Man United, and Chelsea are good at this as well, when you play for Man United, if you come out of Man United's academy, you can generally play at any level of football. You can play in League Two, League One, Championship, Premier League. You've, you've been taught how to play a real game of football. Yes, of course, they have ideas. Yes, of course, they'll have certain ways of playing. But they, they, broad, they broadly know how to play the game. They produce footballers. Whereas, and I'm not knocking them, but let's say you go down the Manchester City route. Yeah. Manchester City, generally speaking, won't produce players that can play at League Two. They can produce players that can play a specific style of football that very few clubs can play or very few clubs do play. And if they don't play for those clubs, then they're kind of struggling. So... I prefer it when I see academies that they help teach players the game generally. Yes, have a way of playing, but not this stuff where, you know, you're getting your 15-year-old keeper to pass to their centre-back every single time, no matter yeah. what, and not learning how to play a real game of football. That is where I think that the academies are still 
quite far behind that they're teaching players how to play systems and how to do this, but not teaching them how to learn and how to play the real game of football, how to prepare them for what is first team football. Yeah, it's actually really interesting that because of course the the period in the in the mid two thousands to 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 uh, late and early twenty tens we were we were all wowed by the success of La Masia at Barca and the yeah. Barcelona way etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think everyone knows now that that it, there, there's obviously an element of truth to it but also combined with just the most extraordinary set of circumstances ever to produce five or six players that all just played in in in, in harmony for so long yeah, and of yeah, course yeah. that that wasn't um there was no way they could continue doing that forever and, and now they've got one academy player in no two and one of them's Lionel Messi still so um I, I totally get that actually and it's interesting you mentioned Manchester United and how do you think clubs think about this stuff because of course at the end of the day as you know full well the attrition rate's huge very few yeah. academy players go on to play for the first team of their clubs. In fact, I, I don't know what the stats are, but I imagine it's very low. Yeah. Do you think that they, you know, the Manchester United way there is, well, you know, if we do this, at least we're creating assets that are more sellable down the line. Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, you have to be real and, you know, football is a business like anything else and you've got to be cold and, you know, they players are seen as assets. But by the same token, there is a genuine level of care. And at a club like Man United, you know, Having met, you know, having met people that work for the club and, you know, know who they are, I do genuinely believe as well that there are a lot of good people out there and there's a lot of bad people, but a lot of good people that genuinely, genuinely care about if the player makes it at whatever level and take genuine pride that, let's say, for their academy, because if you, the Marcus Rashford route, people need to understand, you know, it's incredibly difficult to play for the club that you've played for at academy level, and then go and establish yourself in the first team at one of the biggest clubs in the world. It's so, so, and maintain your performances. It's so, so difficult because, you know, and that's where it, it, it winds me up when, you know, you see people like, you know, Reese Oxford, for example, people call them a flop. And it's like, well, no, they're not a flop because they've managed to establish a professional career. That's incredibly difficult at any level. For the players that can maintain at the highest level, that the, the clubs like Man United, Fair play to you. It's incredibly difficult, but it's still a major achievement that someone like Reese Oxford, okay, he didn't go on yet to become the, the next Rio Ferdinand. Very few people are, but he's managed to sustain a professional career. And I do genuinely believe that people at Man United and other clubs and obviously other people, that if, they, if their academy player doesn't quite play for Man United, okay, but have we prepared them to go and have a career in the game? So I do genuinely believe that they take as much pride, or maybe not as much pride, but a lot of pride in an academy player that goes on and plays 200, 300 plus games in League One, League Two, and has a proper professional career. I do genuinely believe that, yes, the financial aspects can be attractive for that, of course. They make money from selling on their assets. But I do genuinely believe that there's a lot of people at good clubs and, you know, good people that take a lot of pride in producing professional footballers, not just the remit of producing players for Man United. That's the ultimate, that's the goal. But if they don't, have we prepared players to play professional football? And I do believe that, you know, there is a lot of pride when people do help players have that journey. Yeah, and the, the uh, of course that's right. And I think um, what we touched on at the very start, just talking about my previous guest about the mental side of it, to, to actually be able to go from, you know, being an eight, nine, 10-year-old kid 
to the first team to stay in it for the same club. I mean, it's not just physically impossible. It's mentally draining, right? Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, you can't imagine the fact that, you know, you, 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 most of them burst onto the scene. That's how this generally works, isn't it? So on bursts onto the scene. And then after that, it's a, can they keep it up? Oh, and yep. they have like a Mason Greenwood. He has one bad night out, doesn't score for a few games. And it's like, well, you know, you might not come back. Of course the kids come back. He looks like he's a good player and all the rest of it. But mentally, to, to constantly feel like you've got to live up to this role, you either yep. sink or swim with it. You're either Harry Kane or Marcus Rashford, or you're one of the many that just can't hack it. Now, how, how I mean, and when I say can't hack it, I mean, that's, that's not me disrespectful because it is extremely hard. Sure. But, but the, the pressure that is put on you probably is only second to the pressure that these guys put on themselves. And, and I imagine yeah, yeah. you see that every day. So yeah. on the mental side mm-hmm. of it, how much, without using the football cliche of putting yep. an arm around the shoulder, um, how much how much of your day job is is helping these kids out with what's going on upstairs? All, all day, every day. It's a part of it's a part of every single session. It's it's your mindset and your mentality. You can do all the work you want. You can you can make yourself as technically excellent as you want. You can make yourself as physically excellent as you want. But at the end of the day, it's it's the mindset and it's the mentality that determines how far you go. So. All day, every day, um, any session I do, any, you know, it might it might seem that I'm just doing a technical session with a player, for example. But there's, of course, there's mental aspects in that. You know, there's mental training in that and constantly talking, constantly, you know. And again, it, it's very difficult for me to give a broad answer because there's no such broad answer. Yeah. You know, you said, uh, you said earlier about, you know, the arm around the shoulder. And sometimes it will be that. Sometimes it'll be a kick up the arse and tell them you got to do better because, you know, by the same token, that pressure is there. But that pressure isn't going anywhere in the sense of, you know, football Football sets the standards. I don't set the standard. Football does. And the, the standard of football, you know, the, football sets the bar. And yeah. that bar isn't going to lower just for you because, you know, feeling sorry for yourself. So you've got to make sure that you are strong enough mentally. And sometimes that can be with an arm around the shoulder. Sometimes it's a kick up the, up the backside. But the mental aspect is and will always be the biggest the biggest part of it always always you know you can do as much work you want but as you said it's what goes on upstairs that determines how far you go and it's not to say that players that don't make it are mentally weaker that's not true at all because there are so many tangibles that go into the success of a, a footballer so many tangibles you know are they have they got the ability uh, are they in the right environment? Is there bad time? There's so many things, too many things to list. Yeah. Um, but all I will say is that obviously, you know, put it this way, there's never been a professional footballer that sustained a career in the game that's mentally weak. That's never happened at, a- at any level. You've never, ever had a mentally weak professional footballer that's played 200 plus games. Never happened. You've got to be so mentally tough. So yeah, all day, every day, I'm working on that side of the game. Yeah, and it's so true. And I think there's there's a difference also between the the the, the day to day mentality of of being a professional in any sport as opposed to that mentality of being a successful professional player in any sport. Then, let alone the ultra level of being a winner uh, at yeah. professional sports, because that's another different level again. So yeah. uh, it fascinates me all of that because you know every time, uh, especially in the Premier League, and uh, any time. 
you know, someone rolls over, all the team are suddenly mentally weak and all the rest of it. And yeah, you know, yeah. oh, they've got no fight or no drive. And sometimes it can look like that. And, and you know, mm. yes, I'm sure heads drop and they all look at each other and blame each other. And they're all just 11 blokes at the end of the day. But I don't think most people appreciate that you don't get to play for England, for uh, a premiership club, um, having all the years of hard work to get there, unless you are mentally strong, as you said. So, yeah, completely. Um, um, yeah, go on. I was going to say, for me, I just want to cite this player. For me, a great example of that is Jesse Lingard. You know, this is a player that played Man United Academy, came through, done well, played for England, really good player. He has taken so much stick in the last few years, so much criticism from social media. You know, he's had bad times at Man United recently, not being able to play. He's had, obviously, you've heard about the family issues outside, you know, health issues from his family, which is horrible. And yet, you know, he's gone on loan to West Ham last night and produced that level of performance. You know, that it just shows the mental toughness that these people have. And it, it, they're, they're, a credit, they're a credit to them and they're a credit to the profession that, that, you know, that despite everything that goes on, despite all the tangibles that, that go into performance and if they make it, that they are still able to sustain a career and produce high levels of football. It's, they're a credit to, you know, uh, he's, he's a great example of that. Again, for me, kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. And, and people have, you know, he's not had the best year or two. There's no doubt about it. But people have extremely fucking short memories. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that long ago that he was playing for England, uh, starting for Manchester United and um, doing very well, too. And of course, everyone falls off and some people fall off and never come back. It's just the um, way it is. That, that's the way that life and football goes sometimes. It's not that they are yeah. bad at football or they're mentally weak. It's just that sometimes the way it goes. Now, of course, you do get the elite, elite level mindset that people like Sergio Ramos that maintain their incredible levels no matter what. Yeah. But I mean, y- y- how many people are like that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but those people, Ramos, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah. Messi, those people would be ultra successful in anything they wanted to do. Yes, so, yes, exactly and, and right. Thierry Omri, whatever. Because they're they're not just physically gifted. The mentality is probably more than anything. Because on on the day that they all learned to kick a ball, you know, apart from true genius like Ronaldo and, and Messi, yeah. Ramos probably kicked the ball and jumped a bit bigger than anyone else. You know, it's 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 what it takes every day to carry on being, you know, in his eyes when he looks in the mirror, the best defender in Spain, if not the yeah. world. Blah blah blah. You you can't you can't really teach that. I don't think you can encourage, you can, you can show examples, sure. but you know, he, he could have been anything. If he had the physical talent, he would have been brilliant at, at tennis, golf, whatever you want. Sure. And yeah. that used to be Gareth Bale too. Now I'm not saying he's fallen off by the way, but you can tell that the fire's not behind the eyes anymore. Um, and that could be for, for a number of different reasons, but Gareth Bale at the same time, super intelligent, super hardworking, obviously incredibly gifted and had a very rough time when he first went to Spurs 20 something games without a win everyone knows that yeah. and then went on to be you know one of the top 5 players by output in the world you don't, sure. you don't do it unless you're mentally strong right and that's what kind of winds me up now people would knock him yeah. in mentally i think maybe the, the appetite and the hunger's not quite there but you know he still wants to win i think it's just that lack of appreciation from people on the outside that don't understand you know the mindset of these athletes they just don't understand how much goes into it it's very yeah. easy for the because people love a moan and I think a lot of times when people don't understand something that they, they their natural reaction is to kind of like fuel it with anger or something like that. So it's like, you know, let's say that 
the Gareth Bale doesn't score and misses a chance, you know, the, the natural reaction from a sofa fan will be like, oh, he, he doesn't care anymore. Well, it's like, well, no, it, it's not that. There's there's lots that go into it, and you're just you're just being reactionary because it's easy to be reactionary. It doesn't being shouting on Twitter and calling someone shit doesn't take any thought. It doesn't take any thought process, you know. Yeah. To actually understand what goes on might actually take a bit of intelligence. It might take a bit of reasoning and a bit of thought process. But people either can't do that or they don't like doing that a lot of the time. So that's why you see a lot of that nonsense. It's just through a complete lack of appreciation, understanding, and you know, that, and that's where it comes from. Yeah, completely agree. Um, just talking of that, then, but it's actually just before we get onto the social stuff because it is interesting because it's a, it's a very important medium for various reasons. But yeah, just before we do that, I just one last thing on on the academy thing. Now, sure. I just wondered as a coach, and this may be a complete generalization, is there? And maybe this doesn't even exist. Is there one thing or or a learned technique that you see in lots of young players that you wish? wasn't there or you wish you could improve or change now i'm going to throw something out from when i grew up which was center backs always told never pass across the goal for example right which okay, yeah. of course now is slightly outdated because the theory is that if you can pass you're not going to make a massive mistake but there and also it was you know to do with shoulder barging and that sort of thing learn techniques that we had for years that really aren't appropriate for the game now. Is there anything that kids now or, or, or younger players now have that you think, do you know what, we need to get rid of that or we need to do this instead? I mean, something that comes to the top of my head that I see far too often, and I even see it at pro level, is players taking dead touches. Um, oh, don't. Oh, winds you, me up. Yeah, you see it all the time. And like, you see like, you know, when we train academy players in groups, they often get, they like it, they get quite surprised because me and my colleague, we kind of, we bollock them quite a lot because it's like they come in here with really bad habits that they've, they've, where they've picked up, I don't know. But you'll see players on the outside, let's say they're bounce passes or even on the inside, they take a touch and they stop the ball dead and they're now waiting for something to happen. And I'm right. like, well, if you just move the ball with your first touch, you've changed the picture. Why are you waiting for the game? And you see it all the time in, in pro football. It's like, move the ball with your first touch, change the game, change the picture. You're just because now you're just playing chess. It's like pass, stop, receive. That's not pulling anyone apart. So yeah, yeah that's something that I see all the time, and that I, I we try to. Now, of course, there's there are situations when you do have to stop the ball dead with your first touch, of course. But generally speaking, so many players they just stop the ball and wait for like, and then they. It's one of those you see it all the time. I guarantee you'll see it in the game say Spurs versus Chelsea. 100%. You're going to see one. You're going to see one player stop the ball dead touch, and, he, and then he's going to go. Where's my options? Well, it's like, yeah. well, if you if you are more proactive, if you've done something with your with the ball, then maybe you wouldn't be looking for options. Maybe the options would be there for you. So that's one thing I see all the time, which I can't stand. Yeah, me neither. And I think this is if 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 ever kids were to watch that Barcelona team and watch the first touch of Xavi or Iniesta, every yeah. single touch was to move it on to, as you say, changing the picture. So it might look like a dead touch, but actually it's half a foot to the right or the left, which means yeah. we go. And, you know, you will see it tonight because what you'll see is either Harry Winks or Hoiberg turn around, pass it back to the centre-back again, and yeah. you'll see a dead touch, and then you'll see Dyer or Alderweireld look up and then decide what to do. Yeah. Now, you're right, of course. Occasionally, you need to stick your foot and see what's going on. But, you know, talk about, well, look, we're, we both watch Spurs, so we both know what it's all about. But the, the, the slowing of momentum, I've never seen anything like it. That, yeah. that team, I've never seen anything like it. A winger or inside forward, whatever you want to call them now, receiving the ball 
and taking this dead touch. Yeah. And then having to turn backwards because, well, you've taken this touch. The guy's now fronted up and you've got nowhere to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah I, I, I can't stand it. And, you know, <laughs> it's making it's me, just, I, just, yeah. I can see it now for tonight. I can't even bear it. Um, it happens at all levels of the game and it's so frustrating. It's like, well, it's, it's, just, it's, not, it's not a very difficult thing to fix. It, it's no. just, it's just these, these bad habits have just been ingrained in these places for so long and it's like, I just, I don't get it, but that is what it is. Whether it's, it's bad it, coaching or whatever. But it's know. fascinating because uh, I remember when Guardiola was taking his break from Barca and he was going around the States watching basketball and all the rest of it and came to the conclusion that all sports through the ball are essentially about overloading one side to free up another or whatever. Mm. And you can see it. Can you imagine in basketball if they receive the ball and just stop? Or if, yeah. a, if a rugby player received the ball and stopped, apart yeah. from getting smashed like the whole momentum of, of the movement changes. Yet you're right, in football, it seems to be something that sort of happens. It's almost like, and I, I often think this, it's almost like there's a pride taken in keeping the possession, right? Now we got the ball, let's not exert too much energy. Liverpool yeah. tend to, they don't tend to do it actually. They move the ball fast. Well, not at the moment. Um, and yeah. City obviously recycle the ball massively well. But yeah, it is a weird thing that it's like, well, actually let's pass it around because then, you know, we've got the ball. Actually, it's not doing anything, is it, when you stop the ball dead and just move yeah. it to the side? But yeah, um, talking to the game tonight. So, um, this is just briefly talk about the social stuff, just because I know you're active on it. Um, I think it's a great look. I, I think Twitter, in, in especially, can be great for groups of people that have a genuinely good appreciation for any sport to mm. discuss with like-minded individuals. That. The problem is obviously with football is it's so emotive it goes over the edge. Now, you're very good on Twitter because you make observations that then you know people say, "Oh, what do you think of this player? What do you think of him?" Or they just say, "Well, that's a load of bollocks." Do yeah. you do you do you kind of keep doing your social commentary because of the good conversations you have, or do you just like doing it because you like putting your opinion out there? No, it's because I want to make money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> honestly I, i'm gonna be as real as that it's i i, I can't I, I, listen there are some great people to speak to on twitter that i genuinely enjoy it but um you know I, I was um a few years ago a colleague of mine said you need to get you need to get more active on social media because you know you've got opinions and and you know it's a good way to it's a good way to sort of get more opportunities and you can monetize and i was like i don't know blah 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 and I've done that. And to be fair, I'm getting a lot more opportunities off the back of stuff like this. Um, yeah. You know, people like yourself get in touch with me. So get invited to podcasts, which is great. Um, so no, listen, I'm, I'm being facetious. There are, of course, people that I do enjoy, genuinely enjoy having conversations with. And what I genuinely enjoy as well, I genuinely enjoy when people ask me questions and actually want to know and want my help. I really, I, that I love that kind of responsibility. I really like that I can help if I feel like I can help people and, you know, um, so that, that, that means a lot to me. And I do enjoy that kind of stuff. But, you know, if I am being real, I, the main reason I do it is because, you know, just to grow my profile and to get more opportunities and go from that way. Um, because for the reason that you're sort of hinting at, it, there are just so many people on Twitter that are just, or on social media that are just horrible. And it's just, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. It doesn't, you can say what you want to me. It doesn't bother me. But it's like, it's just like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get why, why, why someone would behave like that? Why they would hide behind a picture of like their favourite footballer and just send torrents of abuse? Yeah, it's weird because they it? can't. It's just it's just a really weird way to behave. It's like it's very strange. It's really strange. So no, I do enjoy, I do actually enjoy Twitter. I enjoy talking to people like yourself and you know having having conversations and and I'm very grateful that you know if I can help people and 
give advice and talk about my journey that you know and and get opportunities off the back of it i'm very grateful for all that stuff and i do enjoy that but um you know it's obviously i i, I do do it a lot of the time to help grow my own profile of course um which i'm, I'm happy to admit that um because of the reason if, if i wasn't put it this way if i wasn't going to grow my own profile and get more opportunities off the back of it i probably wouldn't do it because yeah for every great person that you speak to on twitter there's probably 10 assholes and it's like yeah. do i really want to surround myself with that it's like you know so you know it's, it's a horrible thing social media is a horrible horrible thing that could be used and is used you know in a really positive way a lot of the time but generally speaking it's a horrible thing and um and it's another thing that footballers have to deal with nowadays and fair play to them for doing it you know it's a uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but for, for a lot of people um, to, to deal with it. But that's, that is what it is. Yeah, I, I think the, the bit that frustrates me about it more is that, and, you know, I've, I've long said that I think Twitter would be a much better place if people had to pay for an account. But um, yeah. I, what annoys me is that, you know, you might actually have a sensible comment or anyone might bring up something. And then someone will just be like, you know just post some absolute nonsense and then you yeah. know it's just it's just then mind numbing and it's just ruined you know what what you know you might commentate not you or anyone might just sort of say well that's a good bit of play as so i was like no it's not it's rubbish he's shit he you know shouldn't play for my club you're like well okay What's yeah. The point in that? Oh, yeah great great yeah great point thanks <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know if it's replaced what used to happen in the pub because look let's be honest if you go to the yeah. match of the pub you're screaming at the tv no one can hear you but sure the yeah, of people yeah, i get yeah. that post they post their team. This should be the team tonight. Well, okay, yeah. it's not going to be. Um, you know, well done. Well, and I just find it very strange. Rather than actually saying, right, that's the team. Let's have a look at the strengths and weaknesses of what we got. It's just this sort of screaming, like, no, you should be playing him. I can't believe it. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird place. It's because it's they, they feel safe. You know, they have a voice. They can get lots of interaction. It makes them feel good when they get people either retweeting or giving them likes and stuff. It's and I actually say this nowadays is there's they actually um it's probably looking a bit too deeply into this, but I have had conversations before with people and think that, you know, I think that with the, with the social media age and stuff like this, that I think there's a big, big misunderstanding nowadays about what success actually is. And it's like, you know, someone will put up a picture on Instagram or something. And if they get like a hundred likes, that's like seen as success. And it's like, I saw, I mean, like I saw one person put something up the other day with a tagline saying, you know, um, I don't have to ask my mum for money anymore. And it's like, you're 15 years old. And you're doing, and you're, and you're, and you're posing. You've got like 300 likes and like 50 comments saying, yeah, talk, tell me about it. And I'm like, what do you want about it? You, you still, you still live at home. You're still going to school. What? And I think there's a dangerous thing in nowadays that people actually, they learn how to live behind a screen that isn't relevant to real life. You've got to learn how to live in real life. And, you know, social media misconstrues what real life actually is. Because if you, if you on Twitter, you tell me, you're an you're an idiot. Um, I, I, you know, you're talking shit. You know, f you and all that. If you say that to me in real life, you know, or say that to someone in real life, you probably get a punch in the face, or or you're yeah. certainly not gonna you're certainly not gonna get any any good respect out of that. So you know, it's it's a uh, yeah. It's I think um, I think the biggest a big the biggest issue is that you know people know that they can't really be gotten at, or they it's difficult to sort of find these people and punish them for their actions. Um, and they feel safe and they, it misconstrues what real life is for them. And that's a big issue. Yeah. And there's no regulation, as we know, there's been a lot of racist stuff recently. Yeah, awful, Twitter's, awful. Twitter's, Twitter's the main culprit. And, yeah. you know, it, it, I don't know how long it has to go on, really, because 
ever since the platform opened 10, 12 years ago, it's, it's been the same. And yeah. um, hiding behind freedom of speech is no good. And um, yet, it, it, yet it continues. And as I said, if you charged everyone 20 quid a month for an account, I think you probably stopped 90% of it overnight. Yeah, um, yeah. Right, look, I mean, we could go on about that one all day. Um, yeah. Harry, look, I'm going to let you get on because I'm sure you've got stuff to do. Um, it's been great to talk and I like to get into the detail of these things. I think um, it would be great to come back on maybe at the end of the premiership season and let's drill down into why, who won what or didn't win what. Because one thing I did want to, talk to you about in in the fullness of time is about teams that look good on paper or or sure. underachieved and that sort of thing and and why and i think yeah this season of all seasons there's going to be four <laughs> or five teams that look like they may well underachieve and one or two that are overachieving so it'd be great to get you back on to talk about that in the future no definitely mate i really enjoyed it you know you're you're, you're great to speak to um it's been a pleasure thanks for the invite and anytime yeah just let me know and i'll, I'll be there 100 percent no worries. Um, thanks for coming on. Anyone listening um, in the show notes, we'll, we'll link out to, to all of Harry's uh, socials and, and YouTube channels and stuff like that. And uh, you can get in on it yourself. But uh, for now, take it easy. Have a good week.